and there's a and there are a series of cause and effects that wind up psychiatry being the way that it is. The first thing is is that psychiatrists worldwide, in order to use the word psychiatrist, they've got to be medical doctors from the get-go. That this is something that's done within medical doctors, or the other possibility would be a psychiatric nurse. But the nurse is a nurse first, and then she becomes a psychiatric nurse. She'll do her Bachelor of Science in nursing, and then do her master's degree in psych, uh, psychiatric nursing. Right? And the doctors, they will do uh, their internships and all their coursework, and then they will specialize in something. You'll have internal medicine, you'll have family medicine, you'll have cardiologists, you'll have uh, sports medicine, and then there is the psychiatry. But the important point about the psychiatry is, is that they started in the medical model from the beginning, which means the body. All of medical science is medicine for the body. From leukemia to heart disease and all of it is body oriented. And here the doctors have spent four, five, maybe seven years in medical school learning about the body. And now they're going to do the switcheroo and become psychiatrists, right? <laughs> well, guess what? They are grounded in and educated in the body. Yeah, so, right. So you can see that connection. The next point, which is makes it even uh, even stronger or even more ground in, was is that Sigmund Freud himself was a medical doctor. And that many of his students who were not medical doctors, they really wanted to be medical doctors. In fact, a good example of that is um, Alexandra Lowen, who uh, wound up uh, having to go to Switzerland because that was the only medical school he could get into. So uh, psychiatry from the beginning has been medicine. 150 years ago, 120, 130 years ago, it started in medicine. And now no one who is a qualified psychiatrist can do so without having the MD. But this is something that doctors do. You know that, right? I mean, even in your country, that's that's the your the the, the laws and the universities in your country just copied what was happening in England and the US anyway. Okay. okay, well, here's that becomes to look like an issue then because um, the almost entire method of psychiatry has to do with treating the patients the way that a doctor would treat a patient, except that you can do you can do an x-ray of the skull with the brain, but you cannot do an X-ray of the mind. We don't have that sophistication level. Then, in fact, they're, they're just, you know, like babies in diapers with a new toy, MRIs, functional MRIs, and that kind of stuff, trying to figure out how a normal brain works or what a brain works like long before they're getting into the detailed differences of individuals. They're, they're not at that level yet. They're still trying to figure out what's an amygdala, what's a hippocampus. <laughs> um, what's a temporal lobe, et cetera, like that. Uh, so it's still very physically oriented. Well, that's not exactly wrong. The Buddha actually has a great foundation within the body, but he's got all four of the Satipatthana, the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects, to where psychiatry is looking mostly at the body. Now, also, whatever the psychiatrist can do is normally done within the preview of medicine. And normally what people do when they go to the doctor is they receive some sort of medication. That's the, that's the medical model. Yeah, medical right. model is medicine. <laughs> I mean, duh. Medical yeah. model is medicine. 
You get that point, don't you? Yes. Okay. So uh, there was some research done in the 1970s that was well publicized and known, but it didn't make it into the public. And that uh, it was a double blind study, more or less double blind, uh, as best they could. But what they were doing is, is that they were uh, doing uh, four things. And so they had a group of five. Naturally, the placebo group, they're not going to do anything. One group, they worked with exercise. Another group, they worked with group therapy and group dynamics with a psychologist or psychiatrist. The next group was physical uh, contact between one-on-one. -on -one the normal sessions of the psychiatrist with the patient in the office, right? And that that either can be psychotherapy or just an office visit like with the doctor. But normally they're looking at it in the sense of the, um, uh, uh, the, the psychological interventions. And then naturally the last group was taking pills. Now, normally this is done, this, this research was done with very specific things like clinical depression. And that later they found out that, that the same thing fit exactly with anxiety because often anxiety and depression are interrelated. And they're interrelated in the following way. If somebody is really uptight and anxious and really, really stressed out because of their anxiety, then the easiest way to handle it is by trying to ignore what's going on, which means that they, in that anxiety, will go into a depression because they're trying to hide from the anxiety. So their outward appearance is that they're in a depression. And you can see that almost to the point of being in a catatonic state. But what they don't want to do is they don't want to get up and do some exercise or go someplace or do something that's going to bring all that anxiety back. And so they're hiding from the anxiety. And this is um, uh, basically the depression. So here's that group. Now, guess what happened in that five uh, pointed uh, uh, double blind study that I was talking about? Who was the most effective? The pill, the one on one, the group therapy or exercise, which was the most motivating or uh, curative? Okay, there's the placebo, there's the pill, there's the group therapy, and there's the, uh, the last well, one. The, I, yeah, the placebo is that they did nothing, but I, I, I guess maybe it's a hole in my knowledge, maybe there was another group the, where some of that placebo group got actual placebo pills to where the other group that we're actually looking at got actually psychotropics, mm -hmm. actual medication. So of these groups, which of them do you think was the one that had the best uh, outcome? Well, like uh, the result, like right now, the fast result is going to be the pill. The pill works like, oops. Like Guess like what? That. In this research, that's not the case. People got better through exercise. Yeah, long-term exercise is lo like long-term, more healthy. But the pill, like, it really gives you, like, right now, I don't know. Well, let us say that the pill would be a possible substitute. But if you look at it a little bit deeper, it's not actually the exercise itself. It's that when people are exercising, they're breathing well. And because they're breathing well, they're getting the body oxygenated. And because they're getting the body oxygenated, they're getting the brain oxygenated, which means that now they can think a little straighter. That exercise doesn't necessarily just build muscles in the body. It helps breathing, which helps our ability to think, which means that now the people can think their way out of their depression. Mm -hmm. So that's an important point, but a lot that may not be there in your classes that uh, that exercise and breathing has a uh, has an enormous benefit. Yeah, yeah, uh, actually, like we still a little bit of that, but it's not really our objectives. But like like we know stuff like some stuff of that, like one mentioned 
is uh, like one therapy for uh, like for panic attacks. Um, they do it in some places, I don't know, maybe in Europe or something. They induce, actually, they induce the panic attack and they make people live through the panic attack. And when they go through it, it, uh, it loses its effect. The, the panic attack like is no more. Uh, interestingly, like the, uh, the 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 breathing method that like I discovered, the one like I discovered like bring I told like I bring the energy up. Physiologically, mm -hmm. physiologically, it's like going through a panic attack, except it like there's no panic in it at all. Like, well, but physiologically, say... it's like it's the same thing. It's with breathing. And the same thing, like they, they induce uh, the panic attack with breathing. Also, like they tell you to breathe through a pipe, like, like they have mm -hmm. their own methods. So yeah, the exactly. breathing does amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, here's something that we can look at about a panic attack. A panic attack actually is when an individual in a particular situation is in, is the situation is inappropriate for the feelings that he's having inside the body. The panic attack way back when in long before medical science ever happened, long before cities, when we were out in the jungle, a panic attack would happen when we would see uh, the gorilla, the tiger, the snake or something dangerous. Right. The panic attack is actually the preparation for the body for fight or flight. But here we are in a Western or in a uh, let us say this, the human society that exists today and fighting and fleeing are not necessarily the appropriate solutions to the situation. But it certainly is the solution to the way that we feel, because the way that we feel is in danger and so we're ready for the fight or flight. This in fact may be why that uh, the research is colored with exercise because if somebody's having a panic attack that means that they've got all of this adrenaline in their body and they're not doing anything with it but if they would go exercise if they go run like they were fleeing from something or if they would box with a, uh, sh a shadow boxing or maybe a um, um, what do they call those big heavy things that are circular that the, the boxers punch on a punching bag? That's what they call it. All right. So if we did the kind of exercise. Uh, that would normally be required for a panic attack, then we would deal with that panic attack because all of the uh, physical effort that is being put in. Then is breaking down that adrenaline. And so they can relax after that. But if somebody just sits there uptight, the likelihood of them being able to relax is remote because they're still got a lot of adrenaline in their system. Yeah, but the body really work, affects the mind a lot. Like, really yes, much. it sure does. The body affects the mind, the mind affects the body. And so we have thoughts of danger the body experiences danger. In other words, we talk ourselves into this is a dangerous situation. We feel danger. The body is prepared for danger and there's no danger there. Yeah, and uh, something in very interesting Demarata, that the panic attack in itself, like the, like the, the physiologically, the panic attack, it doesn't have to be panic, like the word panic. It doesn't have to be. It's, it's just sensations. It's, it's really just sensations, but uh, it's uh, related with the thoughts of dying. Actually, like th there are thoughts Absolutely. of dying, thoughts of all. fear and all, all that. It makes the sensations make it worse and make it that you think, OK, I'm going to die and get mm -hmm. gets worse and you cannot handle it. And it's actually the thoughts and the feelings of fear that make the panic attack, the panic attack without these thoughts and without the fear. It can be actually exciting. I'm sorry to say, but like the sexual stuff—just sensations. It's, it's like the opposite of the panic attack, but it's associated with excitement, with pleasure. That's why we like it. But it, like uh, at the core of it, it's just sensation. It's just like energy. It's like body, like the blood, and I don't know whatever stuff going through the body. Some pressure. It's the same thing, but the thoughts are different. 
But it's actually uh -huh. the same thing. Well, what you're talking about now is the distinction then between an effective psychiatrist and an ordinary psychiatrist. Because you're beginning to see this stuff that is not really taught in medical school. That they go back to the model of the pill because the pill gives immediate instant relief, but basically the pill is just changing body chemistry. Well, you've already got the mind trying to put the old body chemistry back into place. But if you can see that as a psychiatrist, you have more options to deal with someone. Now, there's also a whole nother world that we can discuss a little bit here, and that's the world that I was in. I was in that world when I worked uh, at the state hospital in South Carolina. I was a psychiatric aide when I was in college without a thought of ever doing that again. And then later when I was in psychology, I took a practicum in Ypsilanti State Hospital and there I've got to deal with the same thing again. But then I helped my mom manage the uh, long-term care facility that was normally for old people, but the state of North Carolina started mixing psychiatric patients with the elderly, much to the dis um, uh, a lot of problems, including rapes and murders and that kind of stuff. But the state did it that way because that was the cheapest way out for them, they thought, the politicians trying to save money. But that meant that the long-term care facilities now had to deal with psychiatric patients. Luckily, I had been doing that. But the point that I'm wanting to make here is that when people are institutionalized, the psychiatrist, his job is to make the situation uh, palatable both for the staff and the patient. The staff, in fact, the, uh, an important way of looking at it is, is that the staff dealing with this guy on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis is completely different than the psychiatrist seeing him twice uh, a month or once a month, right? Psychiatrists don't, like there's going to be one psychiatrist in the entire uh, mental institution and you've got 60 patients and maybe 100 staff and only one psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist don't, doesn't see the patients the way that the staff does. And that most often, the medication that's given to the patient is not for the patient, it's for the staff. The staff complain about this guy did this or this guy did that and we need to get him to stop that. And so the doctors are going to then give medication to make life easier for the staff, not to cure this guy. Cures are just not possible in the uh, uh, in this realm of what we call clinical psychology. But there is a new world coming now. That is the world of what they call counseling psychology. Counseling psychology has the perspective of everybody is normal, but everybody could be better off. They can improve their normality. The psychiatric model is these guys are broken and we've got to deal with their being broken. Maybe we can get them up to level to normal, but that's non unlikely. But to get them cured, forget it. OK, to where within Dhamma, the whole point is let's do the cure and let's get cured right now. And then later when we're sick, let's get cured again. And when we're sick later, let's get cured again. Let's get this moment cured. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. And one thing, um, it's kind of disturbing, and it's a major difference, radical difference between the Dhamma and doing psychiatry. It's about, uh, how to say it in English, studying French, the, um, the, 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 the delirium, uh, um, like hallucinations and uh, people who hear things and mm -hmm. see stuff and like they tell you that they have maybe ideas of persecution like other people hate them and that kind of stuff so one major difference we take these things as like craziness as not real 
but actually in the Dhamma, like what I understand, it's actually real for them. It's it's real, mm -hmm. and like the patients say that it's real, and they totally believe it. They're in their own craziness, but it's actually real for them. It's the creation of their own mind, and that's why uh, psychiatry doesn't solve the problem because it say, uh, sees it as something abnormal and like push it back to normal without understanding why these things happen. And it literally psychiatrists still don't know. Like psychiatrists, they still don't know why these things happen, why these people hear things. Why these people like they have fear, or, like they're afraid of like uh -huh. I don't know ghosts uh, that stuff. It's, it's actually because of the mind. It's created by their own mind. And I, I think that if we really investigate, if we put some effort into understanding, or well, hopefully someone will do that in, in the future, it's possible that they understand the cause of that. It's probably some bad action. <laughs> I, I don't want to tell the patient you're a bad person or something, but actually there is like a bad activity in the mind that's going on that's causing the problem. That's what I think it's going mm -hmm. on. I, well, I it, guess what? You're it. Okay. OK, you're the one who knows about investigation, so you're the one who can do the investigation. In fact, this may be um, a very good segue for you into becoming a resident psychiatrist. So your country needs some good psychiatrists, especially since you've figured this out. Let's go back to that point, though. Uh, you have probably heard um, some mystics uh, and uh, wise men mention that life is just a dream. Exactly. That's that's the radical thing. Like the, this whole life, it's like a delusion. It's, it's a delusion. All, it's the same the delusion that this person is living. It's actually his own reality. That's what's it's uh, like disturbing of it. Because I understand that it's real for him. It's real. He's not really it's crazy. Real. It's real. That for real him, is it's that dream is real for him. Real. For him, it's real. That's it's kind of disturbing, the uh -huh. <laughs> a little bit. And so the psychiatrist telling him that it's not real. Well, they don't tell him it's because it's useless. It's useless. Yeah, because it's useless. That. It's useless. That's the whole point. But there is another method that we can uh, count on. And in fact, this method that I'm about to talk about is as old as the Buddha, but it's not the Buddha's method. It's Socrates's method. What does what is the Socratic method is asking a lot of questions. So the psychiatrist, when he's actually dealing with someone, there's having active hallucinations and hearing voices. The right thing for the psychiatrist to do is to go in there and start asking him that patient about this. Instead of just saying, oh, he's deluded or, oh, he's in a dream state or let's give him some pills and put him back in his room so people can deal with him. The psychiatrist can actually use the Socratic method. And here's how we would do that. Oh, you're hearing a voice. Whose voice is that? I don't know. Well, is it a man or is it a woman's voice? And then he'll think about it. See, he's got to start putting this together. And by asking him a lot of questions, he might be able to put it together that the voice that he's hearing in his head is either his dad or his mom or some policeman way back when or something like that. And now the guy can begin to, it dawns on him that this reality that I'm experiencing is actually coming from within my own mind. But we have to ask a lot of questions. And I, I give this method to everyone who has to deal with other people, all of my students. For instance, several guys are talking about their daddies. My daddy is always angry. I don't want to deal with my dad. I want to escape from him. And the answer to that is no. Go and talk to your dad and ask him questions. How do you feel, dad? What do you think that's about? And get the dad then to start investigating why he's angry. So you as a psychiatrist can use that same method of asking a bunch of questions to get, uh, let us say, into the heads of some of these people that other psychiatrists should just give them some pills and write them off. Yeah, it's probably very, very hard because if, if it was simple, someone would have done it already. But 
it's literally there is none. In psychiatry, it, it has stopped. It, it didn't go there. Uh, okay. I think Carl Jung, Carl Jung, he was with Sigmund Freud. Uh, I think he was one of the Jung, psychiatrists yes. who, who, who kind of approached these things a little bit. But I mean, I think that's it. It, it didn't You're, go that path, like the path of understanding. It, it did not uh -huh. go through that. Well, that. Jung worked a lot with uh, what he called archetypes. And that, in fact, all of the students of Freud did archetypes. That Freud himself was very much into what we call Greek mythology. Now, uh, modern views of Greek mythology was is that Greek mythology was a religion. For some people, it was. But for many, many other people, uh, those things were, in fact, Greek psychology. That they would attribute a particular function of humans and then give that attribute to a god. But actually, the, uh, uh, the attributes of, say, Zeus were attributes that ordinary men would have. The attributes, for instance, of Damocles. You know the story of Damocles, the sword of Damocles? Okay, the sword of Damocles is, is that Damocles was a, was a king and he had to sit in judgment on other people. But above the judgment throne was a sword that was suspended by a horse's hair which meant any time that he sat in that judgment seat, he was in grave danger of having that sword fall upon him and, he, and split him open head, head first, okay? That's the sword of Damocles. Now, a lot of people can think of that uh, as just that we're always in that seat, which means that Things feel dangerous all the time. At any point in time, that sword could fall upon me. And a lot of people go around living their lives as if there's a sword hanging over their heads. But there's a little bit more to that story of Damocles, and that is the sense that, no, that sword is not over his head wherever he goes. It's only over his head when he's sitting in judgment of other people when he's actually being the judge, when he's being the king and trying to straighten out problems, that's when it's most dangerous. And so another way of looking at it is, is that the sword of Damocles over our own head only was there when we're sitting in our own judgment seat. So this is an example of Sisyphus and the Rolling Stone and all of these kind of things, narcissist and the, uh, uh, the story of um, Narcissist that fell in love with his own uh, uh, image in the pond and all of that. Right. Okay. So you can see, in fact, that uh, modern day psychiatry is built upon Greek mythology. And that Greek mythology was where was the really, really strong point for um, uh, Jung. And because of Carl Jung's uh, understanding of this Greek mythology and everything is where he came up with these archetypes. In other words, there's overarching types of, of ways of thinking. And sometimes you're in one archetype and sometimes you're in another archetype. Sometimes we're Sisyphus, sometimes we're Damocles, sometimes we're Narcissus. Yeah, actually, uh, to bring this subject, there's uh, the disease. It's called uh, identity, like troubles, identity uh, issues, like like uh, people who get a thing uh, like possession, like they think that they have different personalities, that kind of stuff. These people, they don't understand that personality is created. Like they're not th that this personality or the other personality is actually the one that's behind, but it's, uh, I mean, these people, you cannot deal with them. How can you deal with those people? They literally, they're so engrossed in this type of personality. It's like the, the mind gets fractured. Like, I don't know how these things happen, really. It's, it's a right. little bit, uh, 
interesting to understand and it's not easy it's not simple to understand these things it's like for me it's like the mind like it gets fractured because they're so rigid it gets broken and this personality goes like this and this one goes like that and i don't know maybe okay do you, in your studies in psychiatry do you have any practicums do you actually get a chance to deal with real patients well yeah i'm, I'm going uh, after okay. a while I'm going. great Absolutely great. So let's talk about that for a moment. I would like to introduce Bander and Grinder and NLP. Have you heard of NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming? Yeah. Okay, you've heard of it. Great. All right. In there, uh, Bander and Grinder rediscover what the Buddha knew about all along. In fact, the Buddha was quite skilled at this. Let me tell you about what we're talking about. Now that we know these archetypes, the, the, the way to do it is, is to understand which particular archetype this particular patient is dealing with right now. That's, that, that's actually the easiest part of the job. In other words, is he find out how he's feeling. Look at how he's feeling. You can normally tell, and he'll, he'll describe how he's feeling. He's either frozen, or he's agitated, or he's angry, or he's remorseful. Whatever that is, the, you can the Marathon, see that. Like the, the identity problem is like completely radical. It's not, I'm agitated, I'm... No, it's like completely different person. It's like you are the Marato, and in the next, I don't know, few hours, in the next month, or whatever, another personality, like maybe your friend, it completely, yes. it's not me, right. like completely changes. Okay, right. And the psychiatrist gets confused because this day or this hour, this guy is this way, and the next hour or the next day, he's like this. No, it's not okay. about me, it's like about the patient. The patient is experiencing that. Like, how to right. deal with that? Okay, that's the whole point is, is that let's not think about what that patient was doing yesterday. Let's think about how he's behaving right now, knowing that he's going to change, that sometimes he's going to be Damocles, sometimes he's going to be Narcissus, sometimes he's going to be uh, uh, Sisyphus, sometimes he's going to be something else. Uh, but the question is, for the psychiatrist, going back to NLP, the issue that we're talking about is pacing and leading. In other words, whatever the patient is feeling, the job of the psychiatrist is to join him there. Yes, I understand. In other words, we begin, part of the, the, um, the asking of the questions is to build rapport inside of the craziness. The job of the psychiatrist is to develop, number one, trust, and along with that, friendship. If you don't have friendship and trust with the client, all you can do is give him pills. But if you can develop trust and uh, friendship, then we can get someplace. In other words, we have to go into the crazy world and, and make some friends there. And once we bring and bring establish that friendship, now we can begin to invite the guy out. Let us do it probably the most um, uh, severe issue would be someone who is in a paranoid catatonic state. Do you know what I mean by catatonia? Okay. Basically, their paranoia is so strong that they are frozen in fear. It's the freeze, except that sometimes people will get into that freeze state and stay in it. They don't eat, they won't sleep, they just sit there, and the psychiatrists get freaked out because these guys are just stuck in a state. Well, guess what? This guy who's stuck in that state, perhaps he's actually responding to everybody in the facility is freaked out about him. Right? So what Bander and Grinder uh, did uh, with this one patient, this was actually at Ypsilanti State Hospital. This guy was catatonic, and they walked in. 
both Bander and Grender, and that one of them sort of stayed out of the way. He was there monitoring and looking at what was going on, but he kind of took the pose. But the other one actually sat directly in, uh, across from uh, the guy so that the uh, the guy in the catatonic state, even though his uh, he wasn't looking like he was paying any attention to anyone, he still had his eyes open. And so uh, the therapist positioned himself in the field of vision of the guys in the catatonic state and then assumed the pose of the guy who was in the catatonic state. And just sat there in that frozen state like the guy who was in the catatonic state. And he built rapport with him in the sense that everybody or both these guys were watching the catatonic and the catatonic became curious. Why is this guy just sitting here? You see, everybody else in the facility had been uh, freaked out about him not moving. These guys went in and started acting just like he did. They built rapport. That made him curious. What's this guy doing just sitting here? And so he began to open his eyes and, and lift up and start to look around. And uh, so the therapist started to look around, too. In other words, he's mimicking him, but not miming him exactly. So if uh, if the catatonic does move, let's say something slight, like turn his hand over, then what the therapist will do with that same hand will move it in a different way, but he'll mimic the fact that the guy moved his hand, but he's not going to mimic it exactly. He's going to do something a little bit different. So if the, if the catatonic moves his hand from uh, palm down to palm up, then the therapist is going to take that same hand and scratch himself or do something and then put the hand back down the way that the hand was the way that the, the catatonic put it. In other words, when the catatonic moved his hand from upside down to right side up, the therapist doesn't do that. He makes an intermediate movement, but he winds up back to the same place that the guy was so that he takes the, he, he makes sure that the guy doesn't think that he's being bamboozled or uh, mimed or tricked or made fun of, but rather here's this guy just sitting there. Okay, after about 20 minutes of these slight little gestures and whatnot like that, the, uh, the two therapists figured out that this was the time to try it. Now, this is back in the old days where people smoked cigarettes a lot. And they had already determined that this guy was a smoker in most cases anyway. And here he had been in this catatonic state now for several weeks without a tobacco. And so what... What happened was is that the therapist looked over to the other guy and says, can I have a cigarette? And the guy pulls out a cigarette, pops it up and gives it to the therapist and lights it up. And then the other guy hands the pack with the open cigarette to the catatonic. And guess what the catatonic does? He takes a cigarette. They broke him out of that catatonic state that he had been in for about two weeks. Right. Pacing him first. Now, this is a, an extreme example, but what we can do when you are dealing with someone that that you can, if they come in and are completely unresponsive, don't try to get them to respond. You just get into that same place and build some rapport, even though it is completely quiet. You don't have to say anything. You just assume more or less the same posture that the person is doing so that we could build rapport, get him to trust you. It may, in fact, take two or three sessions where nothing much is ever said because it's much more important for the psychiatrist to be trusted by this guy because if we could get him to trust us and make friends with him, then he'll be much more responsive to wholesome behaviors. Yeah. Any, anyone who is a psychiatric patient 
is not 100% nuts all the time. Yeah, like we, we got different cases, but like the, the, the crazy people, the, sometimes they can be a little bit uh, disturbing. Uh -huh. But in fact, one of the things that many of the psychiatric patients want to do is to convince the doctor that they're not crazy. Well, uh, the, the real crazy people, they don't care them or not. Like they don't care if you believe them or not. It's their if own they reality. Out, they totally believe it. If they it. want out. If they want out of the institution, if they're institutionalized and they want out of that institution, then they then they will try to convince the psychiatrist that they're not crazy. Well, I, I still haven't seen that yet. But, All right. Yeah, well, generally speaking, they're, like they're totally convinced, like they don't care what other people think. They're just okay. feeling their own craziness. All right. Here's a case where that would be true. And, and where it's true, for instance, uh, in the United States, and I'm not sure about your country, but in the United States, one of the defenses is insanity. Oh, I killed my mother, but I was crazy. Do not execute me. Put me in a mental institution is basically what the lawyers are saying. And so that guy who has done a crime and then gets put into a mental institution, he begins to figure out that prison may be better. <laughs> prison may be better than this psychiatric institution and so they will try to convince the doctors to let them out so you haven't run across that others are um, uh, they call it affect what kind of affect does the patient have in other words is he willing to engage with the psychiatrist or is he really off in his own world like yeah, the catatonic, he was really off in his own world. So these are the two extremes. One is up in his own world, and the other one is really trying to convince the psychiatrist he's not crazy. And, and the symptoms, they generally go, like, uh, well, he's living in this uh, reality, but with the pills, with the medicine, he goes back. And he can dissociate himself from these thoughts that he had and these, like, Thing, ideas that he had and these things. He, uh, with the pills, he can dissociate himself and he can see, okay, maybe that was not real, maybe it was not right, and then he can like go back to If he's reality. asking those kind of questions, that's why it's important for the psychiatrist to ask questions, is to get them to look at that. Um, so, uh, this is kind of uh, a way of of looking at it is, is that some people are off in their world and that if they are, then the psychiatrist do not deal with them in this world. The psychiatrist has to go into their world for a while so that we can build rapport inside that world. And a way to do that is asking them a lot of questions. Oh, you're hearing voices. Tell me about the voices. Who is it that you're hearing? Not that the voices are bad or that you're having a delusion or there's nobody there, but give them credit for their reality. And so you ask them about your questions. The questions that you ask, especially if they're skilled, as you're asking skilled questions, that will help him to figure out that what those voices are are just old memories. They're not real. But he'll have to figure that out for himself. You can't tell him, not the psychiatrist. That's the problem with the psychiatrist. That's why they don't bother to try to tell him anything. It's because they know he's not going to hear it. The question is, is how can you help him to see it for himself? And the answer to that is by asking a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Well, how to, do you think we can apply that to ourselves, like in the practice? Because we engage in the world in, with the senses, and how accurate are the senses? How real is? Uh, can we figure out? Like we, we cannot figure out a lot by by the senses, okay. but that's all what we have. That's what we what we experience. Just the your, senses. Your your question now is precisely the teaching that we've talked about before, Petitu Samapada. So let me see if I can answer that question this way. All right, there is a real world. 
to real world that we can touch, that we can see, that we can taste, that we can feel. There is a reality there. However, in order to make sense out of that reality, we have to compare it to something that we're the information that we've already got. In other words, if I look at that thing out there and I call it a tree, I call it a tree because I know already what trees are. And that one fits my description of a tree. Right? Well, that's easy enough, but there's the other kind of understanding, and that is, is that when I see the tree, that's just with the eyes. But there's another kind of seeing, and I would say that in the sense of, oh, I see what you mean. Which means that now we're understanding a concept as a concept. However, this is the point when things can get really dangerous because when we build that concept out of our past plus the present, the concept often now is not exactly real. It's got emotions or it's got old memories or it's got, uh, uh, for instance, if there is any racism in one's uh, uh, past, then when they see someone that's not the right color, that racism will come up and they're dealing with that person as if he's something else instead of paying attention to what's really going on in the moment. What's really going on in the moment is, is that, for instance, that white man or that black man may really be a really good guy for you to learn to know. But because he's black or because he's white or some other color, we automatically assume that he's something that I don't want to have anything to do with. Okay, so this is how that's colored. We color our own uh, understanding of reality. Everyone does this, whether they're hospitalized in a mental institution, whether they're out on the streets running crazy and everybody knows they're crazy, or whether they're out on the streets running crazy, but their craziness is just like everybody else's craziness, and so they're assumed to be normal. The only difference between what is crazy and not crazy is basically is what is normal and not normal. But it's all many times just crazy, not wise. So what that means is, is that when we uh, see something in the reality of the moment, we make something of it. We literally make something of it. One of the things that we can do is to see something more important than it actually is. We can see it in one context because we've seen it in that context before, but now in the reality of this moment, it's in a different context, but we can't see that because we see it in this old context. Okay, so uh, an example of that would be a soldier who has been in war, let us say in Afghanistan, and he's home, and he's laying in bed asleep, and his five-year-old son jumps on him while he's asleep. Yeah, PTSD, he gets a lot of... Uh, and PTSD, right? exactly, exactly. And so his um, uh, exactly. self-preservation instinct is coming from that war is like he's going to be choking his son before he even wakes up to recognize that this is his son. Mm -hmm. This has happened. I mean, this is not an unusual thing. This is this happens yeah. a lot that we get um, emotionally attached. We could also go so far as to say that everybody suffers under post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, exactly. But in small doses, that's what, what I noticed because it's like a small PTSD and then it's a small PTSD. Maybe I get uh, like a bad result from this bad thing. There is a small PTSD that tells me, OK, get away with it from from that, like avoid it. Maybe, I don't know, dodge it or something like that. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. something that I really noticed. Small PTSD. But w when it uh, gets to the threshold that it threatens your uh, normal life, then it's diagnosed and then it's... it's Guess it's, what? What you're talking about threatens your normal life means that now everybody in town can see it. The actuality of it was is that it was threatening normal life before anybody could see it. 
He was still in suffering. Just like each one of us is in suffering until we wake up and see it. And then we have a choice to change it. So some people will be doing bad behavior, but because that behavior is acceptable in this society, he's not seen as crazy. But if he does some other behavior that's unacceptable, but now it's now not just wrong behavior, but it is a social faux pas. Now people begin to point at him and says, that guy's crazy. So now that we know that the craziness is more of an observation than it is an internal reality, the internal reality is that we're all more than likely going to be living in a dream state, which means that our uh, understanding of reality doesn't actually match reality. This is why the investigation is so important. Instead of looking at one thing one time and say, oh, I know what that is, we need to say, no, I don't know what it is. Let's keep looking. Let's keep investigating it. And so this is when we keep investigating it. That's when we begin to really pay attention to what's going on, and then we can begin to see the subtleties of our own dukkha. So... That point about Paticca Samapada is, is that consciousness of the sensory input is then processed. One of, uh, in the Pali, the processing is called Nama Rupa, which means we take, right, we take the Rupa on the outside and we put it into the brain, we, we name it. We bring that object out of reality and put it into the mind. By doing so, that's a dream, because the reality is that it's real out there. The fact that we put it into the mind is the dream. And so everything winds up being a dream. The question is, do you know that this is a dream and you need to keep looking at reality? To keep checking it out, keep checking it out, keep checking it out instead of assuming that we know. Because the assuming that we know is the dream. That's the dreaming. And we all do this, and psychiatric patients do it also. Everybody does this. But the Dhamma dude knows he's doing it. And because he knows he's doing it, he has a choice. Which means then that the psychiatrist has a duty in a way of asking the kind of questions to the psych, to the to the patient to get the patient to look at what he's doing. Our questions are pointed and directed in the sense of what do you feel? What kind of thoughts do you have associated with that? Etc. like that. So we begin to pay attention to and get the guy uh, that we're working with that way. Now, this could be done in a, uh, the psychiatric uh, doctor-patient relationship, but it can be done at home. You can do this with your mom also. You don't have to play psychiatrist, but what you can is get mom to look at how she feels by asking her about it. So when dad is really, really angry, we can ask him, hey, dad, how come you're so angry? What's got, what's got to you? What happened at work today? You know, and start asking him questions like that. And get him to take a look at it. Yeah, that's, that's one practical advice. That's very practical advice, is asking people questions. Whether you're the psychiatrist with a uh, patient, or whether you're out there dealing with your family or dealing with other psychiatrists or everything like that, because we're all nuts. We are all crazy. We are all psychiatric cases. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that we're living through. <laughs> we are all living in a dream, a self-constructed dream state. And the question is, how close does the dream that we're in mix, uh, match with actual reality? This is one of the definitions then of dukkha. Dukkha is the distance between reality 
and what we make of it in our dream. So if your dream is very close to reality, there's very little dukkha. If your uh, dream state is spot on with reality, then there's no dukkha. But if your dream is way far away from what's happening, then more than likely there's going to be some calamity in there, some dukkha, some problem, some missed opportunity. An example of that is, is that you see the, the, the target here, but you think the target's over here. And so when you're shooting, you shoot there because that's where you think the target is. And you keep missing it. But if you investigate and investigate, you can say, wait a minute, I thought the target was over here and I keep shooting over there, but I see that it's not there. Let me adjust my scope. Let me adjust my sights. Let me see where that hand really is. And then I can hit it directly. This is why investigation is so important. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a psychiatric institution or whether you're in home or whether you're in a classroom or whether you're on your own in private practice. That investigation, investigation and investigation is what we need to do. And we know that in our own case. But other people don't know that. And so how we get them to investigate it by asking them questions, inviting them to investigate what's happening inside their own mind. OK, OK. <laughs> That's fairly simple, isn't it? And, and if you do that, it will revolutionize how you deal as a psychiatrist with mental patients. Because most psychiatrists, I know I've been in that place before. I've been the administrator of, a, of a, a facility. And we get the idea that we know what's wrong with that guy. We know what he needs to take. We know what to do with him. That's the wrong approach. Absolutely the wrong approach. We have to stop thinking that we know what's good for him and ask him. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank, thanks for the advice, Amarato. I really appreciate it. Um, well, th okay. that's, that's all my well, questions. Yeah, go back into your uh, psychiatric studies with this understanding that uh, we have to take that approach. That if you ask, people will do the investigation and then they can begin to figure out why they do things the way that they do. And they can also see that in when I'm doing that, it's not wholesome and I can make a change. So you can actually teach people on Apanasati without ever mentioning it or the Dubuda or anything like that. You're just asking questions. Okay. Okay. I think this uh, sums it up. Uh, I don't know mm -hmm. if you have another advice. Or I think that's it. All right. Okay. So I uh, want to hear it when you get when you actually get a practicum. I want to hear it when you actually get a practicum. Yeah, I hope so. actually start dealing with patients rather than just classroom. Yeah, well, it's still far in the future. Like we have contact with the patients, but it's kind of limited and it depends on which uh, teacher we have. There are teachers that allow us to actually interact with the patients and teachers that tell us don't go. And there are patients that are aggressive and there are patients who can you actually talk with them. So it depends a lot on the circumstances. You can actually start the rapport that we're talking about before you ever get a chance. If you're already in there, and in other words, if, if there is um, a head psychiatrist and five or six student psychiatrists following them around on the ward, you can take an opportunity to begin to, uh, to uh, catch the attention of some of the patients there and smile at them. Just smile at people. Let them know well, that you're a friendly case. It, it can be really dangerous because because there are some ones who are really aggressive. But yeah, right. Well, maybe I'll but you're you. doing it when you're with four or five other psychiatrists. So if you're if you smile at somebody and that ticks them off, you've got five psychiatrists right there to deal with it. Okay. And you'll know to leave that guy alone next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. Um, I'll see you soon. I, I, yeah. All right, that's great. Okay. I really am pleased. Yes, I'm. I'm glad that you're taking your psychiatric stuff now. Yeah.
Well, um, you're going to make a great psychiatrist, I can tell. Well, I, I hope so. Still in the future. I though. know it. I don't have to hope. Okay. I can see it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, see you. See you next time, probably in, on Sunday. All right. Okay. Yes, I would like to see you on Sunday. That would be great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. See you later. See you.